Welcome to Rusk Insights on Rehabilitation Medicine, a top podcast featuring interviews with thought leaders in the field of PM&R from Rusk Rehabilitation at NYU Langone Medical Center and other prominent rehab medicine institutions. Your host for these interviews is Dr. Tom Elwood. He will take you behind the scenes to look at what is transpiring in the exciting world of rehabilitation research and clinical services through the eyes of those involved in making dynamic breakthroughs in healthcare. So listen, learn, and enjoy. Hello, and welcome to another episode in the Rusk Rehabilitation Podcast Series. Today's interview is one of many that will make it possible to learn about developments in the field of rehabilitation aimed at improving the lives of patients. I am honored to have as today's guest, Tammy Altshuler, who is a speech-language pathologist and clinical specialist in patient-provider communication at NYU Langone Health and the Rusk Rehabilitation Institute of Medicine. So thank you for being here today. Thanks for having me. You're most welcome. Her work at NYU Langone involves spearheading hospital-wide initiatives to establish communication access for all patients throughout the continuum of care. She is a board member of the United States Society of Augmentative and Alternative Communication and an active member of the Patient Provider Communication Forum. She has presented nationally and internationally on the topic of patient provider communication. So during an interview with you in 2017, you indicated back then that you were dealing with communication breakdowns between clinicians and patients that can be resolved through augmentative and alternative communication. Are you still doing this kind of work? And if so, please describe what augmentative and alternative communication is and how these procedures are used in the hospital setting. Sure. Um, I'll start with describing what augmentative and alternative communication is. And for time's sake, I'll just abbreviate that to AAC. It's much easier to say. Um, And it's a a term that we all use in the field. But we all use AAC every day. It could be anything that we do to supplement our speech, to help us get our point out in some way but also an alternative means of speech for those who are unable to speak for some reason. And we do this every day. We're texting, we're writing, we're using gestures, we're pointing, we're nodding, but we all use it probably more to complement our speech. Um, In the hospital setting, it's typically used by patients when they have a sudden event where they're unable to speak, if it's a stroke or a head injury, or they have a breathing tube in and they're not able to speak, or it might be more of a chronic and long-term issue where people have maybe developmental disabilities or they had a stroke a few years ago and there's some residual aphasia and they still have difficulty communicating. Um, The second part of your question is, yes, I've been very busy since we last spoke in 2017 and busy in a good way, and the program has really expanded and we're getting a lot more referrals and we're focusing a lot on the direct patient care and helping patients all the way from the ICUs to acute rehab and getting their communication needs met. But also we're working on a lot of education and training for attending physicians, residents, fellows, medical students, nurses, um, and really uh, work on how we can all be better at communicating with our patients and how we can help them communicate with us. 
Please describe the kinds of patients that you've been treating for COVID-19 from the standpoint of demographic factors, such as the ages of these individuals and the nature of their health conditions. And in the form of treatment, I imagine some of them are on ventilators or they're in the proning position. And how does that affect the ability to communicate with them? From my experience in the past few months, I've been seeing a lot of people around my age, a lot of men, uh, in their 30s or 40s, and uh, some of them without any other medical history or risks. And unfortunately, a lot of them are people who are essential workers who got sick, um, people who have limited English proficiency and they speak another language, which can be very challenging when someone's on a ventilator and they're unable to speak. And Fortunately, I'm getting to see a lot of these uh, patients improving and getting off the ventilators, but unfortunately, some of them are still on the ventilators and needing more long-term means of how to communicate. And are they also sedated? And if so, how does that affect the ability to try to communicate with them in any meaningful way? Yeah, they, they usually start off once they put the breathing tube in. So if it's intubation or if they're getting trached and then they're on the ventilator, they're usually sedated for the first few days, but as they hopefully try to come down on the sedation, I'm looking for any moments where the patient could be awake. And if it's only for a few moments in the day, then I want to optimize that time. And usually for those few moments, patients are able to respond to yes, no questions. And not everyone is able to just nod their head yes or no. So maybe coming up with different signals like looking up for yes or closing your eyes really hard for no. So people who are sedated can communicate. It's just the level of sedation that they're on. It seemed in the early months around February or March for the hospitalized patients, it, it was quite common to put them on ventilators right away. Is that still as prominent a way of treating these patients or has that been diminished somewhat? I think it might be hard to say because we're definitely seeing a lot less patients with COVID coming into the hospital with that initial diagnosis. But yeah, in April and May, we were seeing um, patients who were getting um, trachs placed at the bedside and maybe seven or eight of them were done in one day. And then we would see them on the ventilator. But thankfully, the people who we were seeing that with got off the ventilator pretty soon and didn't really have long-term communication needs. But we are seeing some people who are have been here since March and are still on the ventilator. And generally, what kinds of challenges do you see? You've been talking about this a little bit in the responses you've just given, but challenges that may have arisen in treating these coronavirus patients compared to the work you performed before this disease arrived upon the scene. So, for example, you must cover your face with some kind of a mask. And if the patient is on a ventilator, as you just described, and also some sedation is involved, what are the different ways in which the communication between the two of you is affected? And what have you been doing to try to overcome those kinds of obstacles? I think that everyone in the world right now can say that they've experienced some kind of communication breakdown with wearing masks. I've noticed here in the hospital, just interacting with colleagues, I'm asking people to repeat themselves constantly, or I don't even recognize some people in the hallways because their face is covered so much. Um, so what I try to do, number one, when I go into a patient's room is 
make sure I identify myself. And even if I've seen that patient every day since March, I remind them of who I am because I might be wearing my hair different that day or, you know, be wearing a jacket or something that they didn't recognize before and they can't really pick up on facial features so much. But there was a time where I was wearing a picture of myself over a gown. So it can kind of humanize the experience a little bit and have a personal connection. When we wear masks, it's really hard for our patients to see the empathy that we have for them. And so it was really hard to see patients isolated in the early months of COVID and away from their families who can't visit them. And that brings their own communication barriers with that. And then these human beings are walking into the room, but we kind of look like aliens with our gowns and masks and gloves and everything else on. And so I would wear a picture to show them there's a human behind this. Or there are many times I would say, you can't really see it right now, but I'm smiling behind this mask or you know, just kind of let them know how you're feeling or, or just I, validating their own feelings at the same time. But we had a lot of communication barriers with infection control. And normally I would bring in all sorts of high-tech devices, you know, iPads and speech generating devices and some really high-tech eye gaze equipment, um, which I couldn't really do because of the infection control. And so I brought in what we would call very low-tech communication boards that were single patient use only. And so when the patient got discharged, the board would be out in the garbage and it would be no loss at all for us, really. Yeah, I know if I go to CVS, one of the drugstores or a supermarket or anything like that, I'm wearing a mask. And anyone I deal with who's working there, they also have the mask on. And sometimes... I'll say something which they misread or misheard and vice versa. And it's kind of funny, actually, but it can't be too funny in the hospital setting where individuals are sick and you're trying to take care of them and and you're just hearing different things coming through the mask and vice versa as you're delivering your own speech. <laughs> I think it's just frustrating for everyone. Funny, definitely. There have been some very funny moments I've had with patients where they think I said something that I completely did not say at all, and then we have to clear that up first. But yeah, definitely, I think it's very frustrating for everyone. Well, along the way, everyone involved in treating patients has learned so much, and there have been many changes that have occurred regarding the provision of effective treatments involving medications, different things like monoclonal antibodies and steroids, and now even anticoagulants are being administered to these individuals. So a related consideration is in what ways have you seen your approach in working with patients modified in any way since the disease first began to manifest itself? I think the biggest thing would be having a more of a sense of emergency preparedness no, I mean, obviously, nobody expected a pandemic. I, I don't think anyone brought in the new year of 2020, bringing that in and thinking where we would be right now. But in March, when this really started hitting New York City, I got together virtually with some colleagues all over the country, and we created these communication boards because we anticipated the surge in patients who would be intubated or trached and not able to speak. And... That's not my normal practice to prepare and mass produce some kind of communication tools for people, and especially generic. I, I like to make sure that whatever tool someone is using is really individualized and customized for that person. But with the pandemic, I just wanted people to have 
some of the basic things that they would need to be able to express when on a ventilator. And so we produce these boards and and now I'm kind of looking at my practice in the future and thinking of how we can prepare for other events. And I don't want to sound so pessimistic, but um, there are certain things that we should be prepared for ourselves and for our patients. One thing that's changed is a lot more interaction now, rather than a clinical setting, but by telemedicine or telehealth between patients and their caregivers. Have you been involved in any telehealth type interactions since all this began? I have. Not really with NYU, but I see patients privately on Zoom. And I work with people with high-tech communication devices. And a lot of those people have ALS. And they all have a caregiver or partner or someone at home with them during the Zoom call. But um, it's really hard to describe to someone how to get into their own device and program some kind of message or, or change the settings on the device without actually holding the device. I mean, we've all probably been through the thing like a generational gap where you're trying to explain to someone else how to do something on an iPhone or on a computer. And, and that's what I'm doing through Zoom. And it's really challenging to not just touch the equipment and just do it and then show them how to do it too. Once a patient comes to the realization that hospitalization is going to be a requirement, what are the, some of the potential concerns which they need to express once they are hospitalized? I think it could be very basic from the number one communication function that someone should have in the hospital is how do you call for help? And so if you're in a bed in the ICU and your arms are weak for whatever reason, a lot of people can't access the call bell that we use with patients. Um, It can be really hard to push down on that button. So we do have what we call adaptive call bells that, you know, maybe someone could access by turning their head on the pillow and that movement just activates the call bell and lets the nurse know that the person needs help. But patients need to be able to express their pain level or if they need to use the bathroom or not just requesting things, but they should be able to ask questions. They should be able to say, leave me alone when they want everyone to stop bothering them because a lot of people come into that room throughout the day You know, I always go through the example of even though someone might be NPO, they should still be able to tell us they're hungry. And we shouldn't take that option away from a communication board because if they were verbal, we would hear it all day that they're hungry. So we want to give patients those same opportunities. Unfortunately, some patients are going through either end-of-life or life-sustaining treatment decisions. And they should be involved in those discussions if they're cognitively able to, yet not have the ability to speak. And so I'm very often involved in how to facilitate those discussions with patients using AAC. So with your background in speech-language pathology, based on your experience working now over the past few months with COVID-19 patients, are there any topics where more research in your field could prove to be advantageous in improving patient care? And also the second part of that would be, are you currently engaged in conducting any studies? I think the biggest thing would be, I noticed with this pandemic that, you know, the communication breakdown is not just with the person who has difficulty communicating. It's what we call the communication partner as well. So we all have a communication breakdown, even if it's 
just one person who has difficulty speaking. And so I'd really like to focus more on training communication partners, and that could be families or nurses or physicians or anyone who walks into that patient's room and has to communicate in some way, and how we can best manage that in the hospital setting, how we can best train our staff and those patients and their families on communication techniques and strategies and all of the tools and equipment that we can use with them. Um, I'd also like to see a lot of patients when they can't speak, they mouth words. And I'm really horrible at lip reading, ironically, as a speech pathologist, but um, most people are really bad at lip reading and yet we're a little overconfident with their abilities, kind of like parallel parking or dancing or something where we think we're better at it than we really are. And so I'd really like to get some kind of data on how effective of a strategy this is because I'll ask nurses, you know, how often are you able to understand the patient when they're mouthing words? And they'll say, you know, maybe 80% or 100%. And then I'll ask the patient how often they feel that they're understood when they're mouthing words. And their number is usually around like 30 or 25%. So there's this huge discrepancy on the effectiveness of communication between patients and their providers. So I'm not really doing any research right now, but those are some things that I would love to work on. Yeah, it'll be interesting to look at them also from the standpoint of the different periods during the day when it might be a highly stressful environment and an awful lot is going on with everybody involved with the patients. And then also once that fatigue factor begins to settle in, if you're putting in an 8-hour, 10-hour, 12-hour day or whatever, and I imagine all kinds of abilities are going to diminish just under those kinds of conditions. So a similar aspect would be that we have faculty currently in speech-language pathology programs in universities all around the country. So what do you see from the standpoint of the possibility of anticipating the kinds of situations that students eventually may face in the workplace? And is there any way perhaps that the experiences that you're all learning could be incorporated into the future training of the students that are going to be entering your field? Yeah, I, I actually teach a graduate class in AAC, and I had to last minute go from, you know, this full in-class format that I prepared last year in the syllabus to, in late spring, then moving to an online format, which everyone is kind of going through this. And it's really hard to teach this kind of class where you have so many nuances with equipment and technology and teach it virtually and not offer this hands-on experience. So I had to get really creative with using guest speakers and bringing in people who use AAC and having them share their screens on their devices to show how they navigate um, their device and also really just offering some kind of simulation cases for the students to learn from. It's definitely not the same as working with a real human but it offers some kind of realistic approach to learning. But I do believe that students, especially medical students, should be learning on these communication strategies early on in their education. And so some medical schools are offering classes in patient-provider communication in the second year of medical school. So this is something that is very foundational for them. 
Sounds like a positive development. Is there any particular case that you would like to describe now between you and a patient that proved to be not only interesting and challenging, but also quite rewarding for both of you? Yeah, there's a case that I often talk about at conferences, and the follow-up to that is now there's another case, so they kind of go hand in hand. But a few years ago, I worked with a gentleman who was in the ICU, and he was intubated and could not speak, and he was cognitively intact. And the physicians were asking him if he would raise one finger, if he would consider a palliative extubation, or two fingers if he wanted to have a trach placed and go into a long-term care facility afterwards. And he wasn't making a decision. And they brought in his son, and and that was, you know, the son didn't want to make the decision for his dad because he thought his dad was cognitively intact. And they brought me in to facilitate the discussion, and he was able to use um, an alphabet board where he would look at the letters on this big plastic transparent board, and I would follow where his eyes were going, and he would spell out words that way. Hmm. And the first thing he asked was, what is a trach? And then we talked about that, and he decided that that's what he wanted. And a few days after, he had the trach placed, and he was able to use a speaking valve. He told me he felt like I saved his life. You know, he said that they kept saying, you know, raise one finger, two fingers. And I just wanted someone to say, raise three fingers if you have any questions or if you need more time to think about it. And that's a big thing. Like, we're not so binary. Not everything is a yes or a no, or it's this option or that option. And to offer someone an out or an I don't know can be really valuable. And the follow-up is that, you know, a year later, there's another patient, same situation, but 20 years older, and the team was asking him if he wanted a palliative excavation or a trach, and they brought me in, and it felt very deja vu. But this gentleman had a different course, and he had different beliefs, and he wanted to do the palliative excavation. So then the communication really focused on how he can just kind of take some control back in the situation. And so he decided who he would want at his bedside. Um, when they took the tube out and we made a Spotify playlist of all his favorite songs. So that could be playing for him. And, you know, he said he really wanted ice cream. He spelled that out on an alphabet board and someone was like, okay, I'll go get him ice cream. And I was like, wait a minute, we need to find out what flavor ice cream. This is crucial. Like this is this guy's, you know, probably the last thing he'll ever taste in his life. And he needs to, you know, tell us if he likes pistachio ice cream or not. I mean, that would be very important for me. And so two very different patients, two very different outcomes, but also just the power that communication had for both of them. Yeah, those are two really fine anecdotes. So Tammy Altschul, I am going to end this interview by thanking you for sharing your valuable insights with our listeners about the provision of care for patients with COVID-19. It has been both an honor and a pleasure to have this discussion with you today, and I wish you great and continued success in all your future endeavors. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Thank you again for joining us. You can learn more about Rusk at nyulangone.org slash Rusk. Also, be sure to follow this podcast on Twitter at Rusk Podcast.